Now, this morning, if you've been with us uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, you know we're working our way through the book of Start into that uh, next week. But for uh, this morning, in the words of Peter, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I have been sensing the need now for some time just to bring to you a word of encouragement uh, to help us consider some truths uh, that are found in the Word of God, words that will encourage our hearts, your hearts, in difficult uh, times, uh, truths that you already know. But every once in a while, uh, we just need to be reminded of what we already know. And that's what we're going to do. Truths, again, to encourage you, to encourage our hearts, truths that we can encourage each other with, uh, a truth that we really need to hold on to, to hold fast to, truth that ultimately points us to our only hope and our only help, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, I want to start off by saying this. There's a vast difference between believing in God and believing the God of truth. Right? There's a vast difference between believing in God and believing the God of truth. There are a lot of people you come in contact with, there are a lot of people who say they believe in God. But the number of people who actually believe what the true God says to be true and then act upon that truth in their daily lives, I would suspect is a much smaller number. And the only way that true belief can be tested is to find it as we put it into practice in our lives on a daily affair, in the daily affairs of life, right? And we want to be people who truly believe what the God of truth says, amen? We don't want to just be believers in God. We want to believe what God says to be true and put it into practice in our life. Now, it's very obvious that we're living in difficult times, turbulent times, confusing times, uncertain times, challenging times. Pick, pick another uh, adjective, right? It seems like ever since COVID-19 showed up, things have dramatically and drastically changed. And with that has come a sense of fear and dread that has come over our not only our culture, but really throughout the entire world. People fear everything. People are fearful of disease. People are fearful of economic problems. People are fearful of, of rising crime rates. People are fearful of problems at home, problems with children, problems with their education. Mental and emotional issues are on the rise. Social unrest is on the rise. Racial tensions everywhere. The rise of socialism and communism uh, infiltrating not only this country, but really around the world in tyranny, both home and abroad. I mean, fear is everywhere. Now, some fear is reasonable. Some fear is rational. Uh, like when your life is threatened, that's uh, rational to be fearful, to take means to make sure that your life is not taken. On the other hand, much fear is irrational, and the vast majority, almost all fear is misplaced. Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And most men don't fear God. And in this culture of fear and chaos, you also have kind of layered on top of that, you have the normalization and the promotion and legalization of perversions of all kind. You have relentless attack upon our children, relentless attack upon our children through the sexualization of children, through all this transgender madness, and then the governmental promotion of the advocation of so-called, quote-unquote, gender reassignment surgeries aimed at our children, which is nothing more than child abuse of the most barbaric and wicked kind. And people, again, are fearful. They're fearful of things around them. They're fearful of government overreach. Parents are fearful for the ch their children and the world in which they're being raised. Everybody has a sense of uneasiness. Everybody has a sense of fear. 
And if that weren't enough, on top of that, fear is constantly being interjected at every opportunity by the media. Fear of the coronavirus. Fear of the Delta variant. Next week, it will be fear of the Mu variant. You go, what in the world is that? Just wait. It's coming. And then there'll be one after that, and one after that. Fear from not being vaccinated. Fear from being vaccinated. Fear from earthquakes. Fear from hurricanes. Fear from natural disasters, forest fires. Fear from hospitals not being able to deal with people with the virus. Fear from hospitals not having enough staff to deal with people from all these different disasters. Fear towards our neighbors, because you never know, they might be a walking infection, and they might be a spreader of the virus. Fear from perhaps there not being enough of this commodity or that commodity. Therefore, there are runs on the stores, and those things that were once plentiful can no longer be found. Fear is everywhere. And fear has become the ever-increasing reality of the world, ever-increasing reality of our culture, with the emotion of fear controlling people's lives, their attitudes, their actions, and their outlooks. Many people who are being controlled by fear lose hope. They turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol to try to find some relief, and sadly there's an ever-increasing number of people who are turning towards suicide as a way to try to deal with their problems and a futile attempt to try to escape all of the madness of this world and all of their fear. But as God's people, we are called not to live by fear, but we are to live by what? I could not hear you. We are called to live by faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says the righteous will live by his faith. Now that's a truth in a reality that must guide us as God's people in difficult times. The righteous will live by his faith. It's a truth that every generation must follow in order to be set, uh, to be, uh, set free from being swept away in the insanity and the corruption of a perverse and crooked world that is controlled by fear. The righteous or the just man will live by his faith. Faith in the person of God. Faith in the word of God. Faith in what God says. Faith in the plans of God. Faith in the purposes of God. Faith in God. Not in our circumstances. Not in the situations around us. Now the prophet Habakkuk came up with that conclusion. That the just will live by their faith. Just as the Babylonians stood at the door of his nation ready to utterly destroy that nation because of that nation's, Israel's wickedness. And if you remember in that book, uh, one of the great struggles that Habakkuk had was not only when God told him judgment was coming, that was bad enough, but one of the great struggles, the thing that really bothered the prophet Habakkuk was when God said that he was the one who was going to send and he was the one who was going to rise up the wicked Babylonians to punish the wicked nation of Judah and to take them into captivity. And the prophet struggled with that greatly. The question of how a holy God could use a wicked people, a people more wicked than his own people, to judge the nation and punish Judah. And Habakkuk came to a realization that although he didn't fully understand God's ways, he came to a realization that the righteous will live by his faith and not by sight. The truth is God is God. The truth is God is holy and God is pure. The truth is God has a plan for history. God has a plan for the world. And the fact is that God has, in reality, in control of everything. All things, all of history, the entire lives 
of every individual believer, the entire lives of non-believers, the history of the nations. God, listen, God is even in control of the wicked. Right? God is in control of the wicked. He's the one who raised them up. He's the one who sent them for his purposes, the Babylonians, to bring the nation of Judah, nation of Israel, to repentance. God is absolutely in control of absolutely everything and everyone. Now, in the midst of difficult circumstances, and again, some of the circumstances that we are going through and that you might be going through may be indeed very difficult, we have to make a conscious choice to trust God. We have to make a conscious choice to believe that the righteous will live by his faith. So again, as believers, we have to make a conscious choice to the contrary, to the appearances around us, that we will not just believe in God, but we will actually believe the God of truth. We'll believe what the God of truth tells us. A conscious choice to make a decision to believe everything he says, a conscious choice to believe in his person, his character, his nature, to trust him in the midst of difficult times, to trust him in the midst of trying times, uncertain times, for his care because of his love for us. A conscious decision that in spite of the appearances to the contrary, to believe the fact that God is still on his throne, to believe the fact that God is still the Lord of history, that he is the ruler of the nations, therefore that we will live by faith and not by fear. Therefore, we're going to actually believe the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, when he says this in Ecclesiastes 7.14, And the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made one as well as the other. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made one as well as the other. And then we're going to follow in the footsteps of David, who said in Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you, Psalm 56, 3. Now, again, having said that, this morning, all I want to do is point out some fundamental truths. I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you anything this morning that you don't already know. Some fundamental truths. But again, things that we have to put into practice, things that we have to believe if we're going to walk by faith and not walk by sight, if we're going to be uh, those who trust God and not be controlled and motivated and moved by fear. So I thought, well, where should we begin here at the beginning of the sermon? I thought we should go to the beginning because that's always a good place to start. So let's go back to the beginning. You can't get further back than the beginning. So back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. Genesis 1 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, it's a pretty straightforward statement, and it's perhaps one of the most profound statements that ever has been made. Again, it's so simple that even a child can grasp what it says. Yet, it's also, at the same time, perhaps one of the most challenged statements in human history, and especially in the day in which we live, because this statement from the Bible unashamedly declares the fact that God is, that he exists, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if that is true, and it is, therefore, that means that all men are accountable to him. 
All men are accountable to him, which the unbeliever hates and rebels against. Now, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins. It, it tells us not only where the world came from, the sun, moon, and the stars. It tells us where everything in the universe originated. And it tells us where we came from, who we are, and what we were meant to do and meant to be. Again, Genesis is really a history of how things are. And again, the book of Genesis helps us to understand the world in which we live, as chapter 3 tells us, is not the same world that God created. It is now indeed a fallen world. It is a world affected, infected by sin. So the book of Genesis is really vital for understanding life. The book of Genesis is vital to understand how life is meant to be lived and our purpose in life. And the fact that we're not just here as the product of chance, but that we all exist as a result of God's sovereign choice, created in his image and likeness. Therefore, we have dignity, we have destiny, value, purpose. Now, immediately when you open the Bible and you come to Genesis chapter 1, you come to the issue of authority. Right? It's a battle over authority. It's a battle over truth in reality. So when we read in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, you have to make a choice on whether or not you're going to believe that. You're going to have to make a choice whether or not you believe that to be a truthful statement or to deny its reality. And again, that's where the battle begins. Let me tell you what. That's where the battle always is. It's always a battle over the word of God, what God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, again, the unbelieving man comes along and says, well, that's not true. There's no, there's no God. There's no, there's no God. There's no ultimate cause. There's no personal being over all of men uh, whom to, to whom all men are ultimately accountable. We're only here by the process of evolution over millions of years that nothing times times created everything that we see, that we're no, nothing more than the product of chance climbing out of the ooze millions of years ago. Okay, well, how did men reach that conclusion? How did, men, how did men reach that conclusion that there is no God? The answer is by their own fallible, fallen reasonings, through the introduction of their own ideas, through a total rejection of what God says to be true. Because again, the fallen heart and the fallen heart of man says, I will not allow God to rule over me. Therefore, what you get when you reject God's word and reject the truth of his revelation, when you reject the truth from the infinite creator who knows all things, who has revealed to us the reality of the world in which we live, you end up with a worldview that is really nothing more than an expression of the deification of self. The deification of self. The atheist says there's no God. The atheist, when he makes that claim that says there's no God, it's a claim to possess knowledge of absolute truth. It's a claim to omniscience. It's a claim to possess that only which belongs to God himself, an attribute of God. Therefore, again, when the atheist says there is no God, that is really nothing more than a religious opinion. And it's an opinion apart from acknowledging reality. Again, the reality of the creator the one, the only one who is actually there at the beginning who can tell us how it all originated. Now, I don't want to run too far in this direction, which I could do very easily, and by the end, you're probably going to think I have. But I just want to make a comment again that every man is religious. Every man is religious. And it's through that religion or through that worldview that we see reality. That worldview is based on beliefs, presuppositions, that they have about who they are, where they fit in the universe, where life came from, how they should live, etc., and so forth. 
Ken Ham has a new book out. It's called The Divided Nation. If you've not gotten that book, I would encourage you to get that. Divided Nation. And he points out this. He says this. Everyone has beliefs. For instance, if someone rejects God, he believes life in the universe came into existence by natural processes. Then that is his religion. Because he says religion doesn't mean someone who believes in God of some sort. One definition of religion from the Merriam-Webster online dictionary is a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. He goes on to say that definition encompasses atheism. This means everyone has a religion. There are no non-religious positions. And ultimately, there are only two religions in the world, God's word and man's word, which, he says, fits in with the Bible, teaches about two foundations, the rock or the sand, two roads, the broad way, the narrow way. He says there's no neutrality. There's no non-religious person, no non-religious position. And that's a great observation. Everybody has principles and systems of belief that they hold on to by faith. That is a religious opinion. And again, there are only two worldviews, only two religious views in the world. What God says to be true and what man says to be true. Now, obviously, in the day in which we live, uh, many people have rejected God's word in total. So the predominant worldview, the predominant world religion of today, of course, is evolution. It's naturalism. It's secular humanism. It's a world without God. Evolution and naturalism says there's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no one supernatural no one controlling the universe and the events of the world, they just, well, they just occurred by random chance. Accident over time or perhaps through man's determinism. Secular humanism, again, rejects the word of God, elevates man's word. Again, it's a system that's built on faulty uh, philosophical presuppositions with a total rejection of God and a rejection, again, of everything supernatural. So because of that, we live in a time where most men don't understand the purpose of their existence. They don't understand the meaning of life because, again, they've denied the reality that they are created in the image of God. Therefore, they see that there's nothing significant about man, nothing significant about man's dignity, about man's value. And you see that philosophy played out in everything across the board in this world, from television programs to genocide to infanticide to abortion being common occurrences. So with a mindset, a secular mindset, life without God, that mindset has so infected society and the world around us that the whole world of society in which we live in has no kind of moral foundation. That's why it sees no problem with, absolutely no problem with, the promotion of two people of the same sex who quote-unquote love each other. They don't see why they can't get married. We're just promoting love. That's why the world with no moral foundation, no standard to anchor itself to, why it openly promotes if a man believes he is a woman, then that belief alone has now created a new reality. Follow the science. I hear that a few times. Follow the science. You can't deny biology. Just because a man thinks he's a horse doesn't mean he's a horse. But if a man thinks he's a woman, now we better accept the fact that he's a woman. I mean, she's a woman. I mean, I don't know. What preferred pronoun would you like to use? It's the insanity of a fallen world run by depraved minds that double down on insanity. So that's the world. 
a world without God, a world that has rejected God, that lives in a false framework for how life is to be lived, again, with no external guidance, except, again, the only guidance, man's fallible, uh, fallible corrupt mind. Again, that's why our societies, that's why the world is in moral bankruptcy. Mankind fails to acknowledge the external standards of a living God and the external standards of right and wrong. Therefore, mankind is left to his own to figure everything out. And I often point out from this pulpit, all you have to do uh, is just a very simple um, um, exercise of observation. Uh, Just look at the world. Look at the culture. Look at the society in which we live in. The culture in which we live, look at the world around us and see how is man doing without God. To see how that little experiment is working. How is life working around the world apart from God? And ultimately, the religion of secular humanism, which the entire world is caught up into, leaves humanity in the mess that it's in, and it leaves, the humanity, it leaves humanity in a world without hope. A world without hope. Now, again, the Bible speaks to us the truth. The Bible tells us the reality of how things are. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God, and it comes from our Creator. Therefore, again, apart from believing the word of God, believing God himself, people have no foundation. People have no stability. They have no stability in their lives. They don't know who to believe, what to believe, how to believe. And as a result of that, they don't believe as they should. They don't think as they should. Therefore, they don't behave as they should. They rejected the word of God. And rejecting the word of God, every man trusts his own heart, which, again, the Bible says is desperately wicked thinking that his own way is the right way, and the Bible says that man does, every man does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And again, what you see, the result is exactly what you see. It's a world full of chaos on personal levels, national levels, international levels, because people have rejected the truth. They've rejected the word of God, and they've all set themselves up as little deities. The reality is people desperately need to hear the word of God. The reality is people desperately need to hear the word of God. They need to believe what God says. People desperately need to know that God and not chance governs man for his own good, that God has a love for fallen mankind, and that he has provided men a way of escape. Uh, He has provided of, of the judgment and the wrath that is coming. He has provided for their eternal destiny through the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible was written to reveal to us that truth to give us a context in which we should live. And again, to reveal to us the one God who is. To reveal to us who we are before him so that we might turn our attention back towards our creator so that we might have hope in him, that we might have hope in his sufficiency, that we might believe his word and live as those above a world that have no hope, right? We're to live as a world of people who have hope, not as the people who have no hope and the people who live their lives by fear. Again, that's where secular humanism leads. Leads to a world without hope. It leads to a world world full of fear. Uh, Again, there's many people who say they believe in God. And again, they're nothing more than gods of their own uh, making. Uh, Nothing more than idols uh, of the heart. Because the true God, his word has been rejected and set aside. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's the reality of what you're seeing with this transgender madness. It's the deification of self. God, who I don't believe in, didn't make me right. I'm really a woman trapped in a man's body, so I'm going to take it upon myself and change that. Right? that that's, that's a deification of self. Now, again, if we're believers and we claim to have faith in Christ, then we have to make desperately, desperately have to make sure that we don't make these same kind of mistakes that the world makes over and over again. 
We got to make sure that we don't just believe in God. We have to make sure that we believe God, uh, the God of truth. And we have to make sure that we're not in practice acting like secular humanists, denying the word of God in the practice of our life and in the thinking of our life. Therefore, again, Genesis 1-1 becomes the most fundamental foundational principle of truth that we have to guide our life with, guard our lives with. Again, the fundamental principle that God is, the true truth that God is, the fact of his existence, the fact that he is in control of all things, the fact that he has made all things, the fact that he owns all things, the fact that all things are in subjection to him. I mean, just some of the many truths that you could start to pull out of Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that is in existence is because of the handiwork of God himself. The Hebrew word God is Elohim, which speaks of the power of God as creator. El, Elohim. El signifies the strong God, the mighty God, the powerful God. This is the God who created all things. This is the God who called all things that exist into existence by the power of his word. The God who spoke and everything came into being. The God who made everything from nothing. Therefore, Genesis 1-1, standing as a foundational principle, tells us of the immense power and control of God. The fact that God again created everything, heavens and the earth, in the beginning. In the beginning speaks to the fact that he is eternal. That he stands out of time. He is an infinite being that inhabits eternity. That means that he is causing all things to work in time towards a perfect end, a perfect plan, his perfect plan. This eternal being who spoke everything into existence that stands outside of time as the eternal one has control of everything. He orders everything. Nothing is outside of his, his control. Again, the chaos or the confusion that we witness in the world is because of mankind's rebellion against this perfect, all-powerful God. It is the result and the consequences of sin which God said would come. That's built into the rebellion. The author, the creator, the all-powerful one, the eternal one, who in the beginning created everything in the heavens and the earth, the maker of all heaven and earth, he is absolutely all-powerful and he's absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign. We don't understand sovereigns. We don't have a sovereign. We have presidents that we don't like, and we get rid of them and get another one and don't like that one. And get... We have to get rid of that Western mindset. He is the sovereign. He is the all-powerful one. Don't fear the COVID. Fear God. I said most fear is misplaced. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I tell you what, you better fear this God. To be sovereign means that he is in absolute control. You don't determine your next heartbeat. It's ridiculous. He does. He sets the boundaries of our time. We are so foolish to think that we are deities, that we control every aspect of our life, that I'll make a decision when I take breath, I'll make a decision when my heart beats, I'll make a decision. You don't know what tomorrow holds, not even the next few moments. 
God, the sovereign, knows absolutely everything. He's in control of absolutely everything. And as a believer, we've got to start thinking biblically and not with this Western mindset. We've got to believe truths to be true and hold tight to them. The sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in absolute control, subject to no one, that means he does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, as he pleases. He doesn't need your permission. I told myself this morning, don't run off into tangents. Global warming? You want to see some global warming? Go with me to the book of Revelation. I'll show you some global warming. (laughs) Depraved minds, doubling down on stupid, making more stupid decisions because they reject the truth, the foundational truth. We as believers have to hold on to that truth. God is sovereign. He is absolute dependently uh, uh, dependent on no one his absolute independence and allows him absolute control over all things all of the actions of all of his creatures therefore that means there's not one single event in all of the universe that can uh, that can occur outside of god's sovereign control there's not one event in all of the universe that can occur outside of god's sovereign purposes you know what habakkuk had to get there pretty quick with the babylonians knocking on the door so to speak because if you just wake up and go, the Babylonians are here, slaughter is about to happen, and it's a really bad day, bad luck, that's probably not a good worldview. God is sovereign, even over the wicked people of the world. Now, again, on one hand, we acknowledge these truths, right? Yeah, yeah, everything you say, I give you amen, if we did that around here. Right? We acknowledge these truths. We believe it. But on the other hand, we find the reality that at times... God's plan and the working out of his ways are frequently beyond our ability to fathom and to understand. Therefore, we doubt, and then we start to fear. We say we believe in the sovereignty of God, that all things are in God's control, but then when things don't go the way we think they should go, we doubt. We become double-minded men, unstable in all our ways, it says in the book of James. We get tossed here and there by doubt. When the Bible calls us to trust God, to draw near to God in times of difficulty, to purify your hearts, James 4 and 8. Not to doubt and not to be overwhelmed by fear. So again, therefore, we're back to Habakkuk's great statement uh, that again he made in very troubling times when he didn't understand the plan and the purposes of God, but nevertheless he came to the right conclusion saying the righteous will live by his faith. So we're going to have to trust God. We must trust God, even in the most adverse circumstances. But to trust God, we have to know him intimately, personally. David, Psalm uh, 9, verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Well, to, to know God, to know his name, means there's got to be some kind of personal interaction. There has to be something, a level of understanding that goes deeper than just a general knowledge of God That means that you've got to come into a deep, personal, intimate relationship with him and over time discover the fact that he is indeed trustworthy. This God who is completely sovereign, this God who is infinite in wisdom, this God who is perfect in his love towards us. And again, to understand the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God in the midst of difficulty, that reality has to be, must be a comfort to us. 
Jerry Bridges once said this. He said, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. In his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. The issue is, will we believe those truths? Spurgeon once said, the most comforting attribute of God's attributes to his children is indeed the fact that he is sovereign. He says, even under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe sovereignty has ordained their affliction, sovereignty overrules them, and sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all of creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands. So in difficult times, in the midst of trying times, in the midst of uh, personal adversity, we have to make a choice. Whether or not we're going to trust God. We're going to make, have to make a choice whether or not we're just going to believe in God or we're actually going to believe God. Are we actually going to believe what God says to be true or are we going to trust him? Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, Lamentations 3.32 says, For if he causes grief, then he'll have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 7.14, the day of prosperity, be happy. But on the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Point number one, making the outline very easy for you today. You'll see that here in a moment. Point number one, God is in control. Point number one, God, the creator, is in control always. Exclamation mark. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Every nation on the earth is under the hand of God, for there's no power in this world that is not ultimately controlled by him. God is the Lord of history. He is seated in the heavens. The nations are as grasshoppers and a drop in the bucket or a small dust in the balance. The Bible asserts that God is over all. He started the historical process. He is controlling it. He is going uh, to end it. We must never lose sight of this crucial fact. Ultimately, the main message of the Bible concerns the condition of the entire world and its destiny. You and I are just individuals, a part of a larger whole. That's why it starts with creation of the world rather than a man. The whole trouble is that we're inclined to be exclusively concerned about our own personal problems. Where the Bible starts further back, it puts every problem in the context of this worldview. The worldview out of Genesis 1, that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created. We've got to get a proper foundation. If your footing is not good, you can't stand very well. If the foundation of your life is not set on a secure truth, you're not going to live very well. So it's important for us to get a grasp on that reality, the, the sovereignty of God. We, we, we are rightly concerned about the evil in the world around us. We're concerned about how it affects us in our lives on a daily basis. We're concerned about the problems that we have in our own personal lives. But if we're going to live life properly, we've got to go back further than that. We've got to get away from ourselves. I, I often say, especially I think we're going through the book of Ephesians, I say we're so subjective. The world doesn't start and stop and begin with you and me. Go back to the beginning. It begins with God, who stands outside of time, who creates all things, the all-powerful God. Right? So we've got to back away from the situations around us and realize that God is in control. 
And not only is God in control, but God has an eternal plan that he's working out in time. A plan that he has put in place before the foundation of the world that encapsulates all of human history, all the way to the end of human history, and all the way into the eternal state. Do you get that? An eternal God, eternal plan takes place in time. We live in just a little tiny speck of it, a vapor. We're going to go to the grave and more people are going to come after us if the Lord tarries. The end is going to come in time, but God still has a plan for the eternal state. This God who's powerful over all things. It's not just the issues of our own lives. Again, life is much bigger. Lloyd-Jones says the key to history of the world is the kingdom of God. The story of other nations mentions in the Old, mentioned in the Old Testament is relevant only as it bears to the history of his kingdom. What really matters in the world is God's kingdom. He says, therefore, let us not stumble when we see surprising things happening in the world, but rather let us ask, what is the relevance of this event in the kingdom of God? That's a good question. How does this fit in? I don't know how all this Delta or this uh, coronavirus stuff fits in and all the coming tyranny. I, I don't know how exactly it fits in, but I've read enough of the Bible to see how it fits in. If you've read enough of the Bible, you know how the whole world is headed towards a one world system. And we're living, I don't know where it's at in the piece of the puzzle, but I know it's a piece of the puzzle, and, and I can see that. And when we see events around us, we have to ask the question, how does this fit into God, the eternal God who has an eternal plan, who's carrying out in time, who has secured our eternal future already? And, and again, I've said it many times, it's kind of like we're watching football. We're kind of in the game, but not really in the game. You probably yelled and screamed at the TV on the other night when the house State was playing. But again, you didn't get dirty. You didn't get sweaty. You're not bruised. You're an observer. And to a certain extent, that analogy is true. We, as God's children, our eternal destiny is secured. We're his children. He owns everything. We're secure in him because of the person of Christ. God has a plan. And you know what the plan is? You know, I can give you even more specifics on the plan because I read the, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.10 says that ultimately God's plan for this world, God's plan for his kingdom in this world, God's plan for his kingdom in this world in time is to sum up all things in Christ. For Christ to head up all things, Ephesians 1.10. For Christ to head up all things here on earth and in heaven, to unite all things in Christ, therefore to make Christ preeminent. That's God's eternal plan that is and will be carried out in time in history. God's eternal plan, his ultimate purpose for everything that is going on is to, again, reestablish the lordship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, over all. Point number one, God is the creator. He's in absolute control of all things. The destinies of men, the destinies of the nations. There's no greater power than him. No one can thwart his purposes or derail his plans. There's no such thing as chance. All the events in the world are not accidental. They're part of that divine plan of history. Again, a definite eternal plan to glorify himself, to glorify the one who started all things, and to glorify his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make him preeminent over all the heavens and the earth. So again, as the sovereign, all the events of time are controlled by him. We need to remember that. We need to hold fast to cling to that reality. Remember God, our creator, the all-powerful God, and never turn loose of that truth because that truth has to guide us. 
That has to shape our attitudes, our actions, our reactions. That reality has to give us hope in a hopeless world. A world that has rejected the truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Point number one, God is in control always. Point number two, and I've got to go a lot faster. Point number two, take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what you need to understand very quickly is when Isaiah writes these words, he writes it in a time of great spiritual decline in the nation, great spiritual rebellion in the nation of Israel. And very soon these rebels are going to be Uh, quaking before the judgment, the majestic presence of God as he brings judgment upon them. So in the midst of uh, of rebellion, in the midst of spiritual defection, in, in the midst of a chaos of a collapsing society, a society that is bent on unfaithfulness, a society much like ours, the fifth chapter precedes the sixth chapter. I went to that much school to figure that out. Chapter 5 precedes chapter 6. Chapter 5, if you're familiar with the book, is the parable of the vineyard. And in that parable, it describes the uh, apostasy, the unfaithfulness of the nation. He's been, Isaiah's been speaking about that since verse 1. But stating because of the fact of the nation's unfaithfulness and their rebellion, it's going to lead to God's judgment, God's severe judgment of the nation. In that parable, there's a series of six woes that face the nation describing the imminent wrath of God that's coming. We don't have time to go into that. But you got to know that because that sets up the context for chapter 6. In in a time of great difficulty, in a time of great troubles that God is promising to bring, that God is promising to bring judgment upon the nation because of their infidelity, Isaiah... Excuse me. Isaiah needs a picture of hope. He needs a picture of hope. He needs to, in the midst of trouble, get an understanding of the fact that there's a throne in heaven and that God is sitting upon that throne. He needs to believe that fact, no matter how bad things may be, no matter how bad things may get, God is still on his throne, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. Now, very quickly, take your Bible, and we're going quick. I told you I was. Move all the way to the end. Go to the end. Go to the book of the Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> and let me show you the same reality. We've got the reality in the beginning. We've got the reality in the middle in the book of Isaiah, and we got the same reality here at the end, the book of the Revelation. 
John writes this book as an older man. He's been banished to the island of Patmos because he's a faithful preacher of the gospel. He's the last of the apostles remaining alive. All the others have been martyred. He writes at the end of the first century when the seven churches that he's addressing are already in spiritual decline and persecution is beginning to break out amongst the churches. But it's a letter of great hope. It's a letter to speak to the reality of the return of Christ and the doom of all those who stand in opposition to God. So the book of the Revelation is really a message of hope to the believer that, again, God is sovereign. God is in control of all the events of human history. It seems at times that wicked men and powerful men are in control, but that's an illusion. God has set the ultimate destinies of both in time, in eternity. Christ will be elevated. Christ will come again in glory, and he'll judge and rule over all those who stand in opposition to him. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, I behold, and look, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking to me, said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there was a throne standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Again, the first thing that occupies the mind of John when he comes into heaven is a throne. The central reality that dominates heaven is a throne. John's going to call attention to the throne 11 times throughout the chapter, 30 times throughout the book. Again, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a throne. In the New Testament, there's a throne. And the throne, of course, is the symbol of God's sovereignty, the place where sovereignty and rule and authority uh, are Uh, come forth from the place where God executes his judgment uh, upon all of the wicked, where his will takes place, where he will again pour out his divine wrath upon his enemies. And John says, look, there was a throne standing in heaven. The idea behind the word standing is meaning it's mixed, it's immovable, permanent, unchanging, unshakable. And again, he notes the fact that it's not empty, it's occupied. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, there was a throne standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. That's reality. It's true truth. The question that we have to ask ourselves, our hearts, deep, deeply, is are we going to cave to our feelings, cave to our circumstances, or are we going to believe what God says to be true? The fact that there's a throne in heaven standing, and there's one sitting on that throne. Because, again, isn't it true at times we're tempted to look at the world, we're tempted to look at our own struggles, our heartaches, look at the world around us, and we're tempted to ask, where's God? Is God really in control of all these things? Is there somebody's hand who's ultimately guiding the destiny, the affairs of the nations? Is there in chaos? And, again, is there not a great temptation in our own personal lives when things aren't going well? Sickness, death, separation from friends, facing opposition, persecution... Isn't the question that we often ask, where's God? Why isn't he fixing this? And again, God in his kindness answers those questions to the churches here in the context of the book of the Revelation, but he answers that question to the church, to us, to all men everywhere. The fact that that throne is standing in heaven, occupied, means that the mindless, purposeless forces of random chance do not govern this universe. Amen? There's a throne in heaven. There's one sitting on that throne. 
that throne is occupied by God our Father who is the creator, our creator, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke it all into existence by the power of his word, the eternal one. Therefore, again, there's not one stray atom outside of his rule, outside of his authority, outside of his control. If there were one stray atom outside of God's control, then God would be a limited ruler. He wouldn't be sovereign. But he is the sovereign. He rules over everything, everyone, all of the events. We've got to get a right perspective living in this chaotic world in which we live. So again, when we look around the world and we see a world dominated by sin and heartache, we've got to remember nothing ultimately is out of control. There's a throne in heaven. God sits on that throne. Everything is working out to his appointed details, to his appointed time. When everything is going wrong in our life, when our life is full of tribulation and disappointment, sickness, death, loss of a job, whatever, again, remember, the throne is not empty. When persecution comes for taking a high stand for the word of God, the sufficiency of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, remember, there's a throne in heaven, one sitting on that standing throne, one who's preeminent, one who is unchanging, one who's in complete control of all of the universe. And I guarantee you that's especially good news for the person of John, just like it was good news to Isaiah when he was about to be told all the things that are going to happen. It's great good news for the person of John here in the book of the Revelation because of all the horrors of the trauma that are coming that are about to be released upon the wicked world and the end time events that they unfold in chapter 6 through 19. God is in control. Point number one, God is in control. Point number two, to keep my word to you that my outline will be easy, God is in control. Same point. Our king, our father in heaven, the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, rules in an absolute sense of the word, in all absolute senses of that word. He rules. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 47, verse 2, the Lord high, the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Verse 7, for the king, for the God, for God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8, God reigns over the nation, God's nations. God sits on his holy throne. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, there is no other. I am the one, I am God, there is no other like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel 4 and 7, in order that the living may know that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it, on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. <clears throat> uh, Daniel 4 verse 26, recognize this, heaven, it's heaven that rules. So again, no matter what happens in the world, as God's people, we're not called to live by fear, we're called to live by faith, the righteous will live by his faith, again, no matter what happens we're called not just to uh, believe in god we're actually called to believe the god of truth to trust his word to trust his truth because again he rules in the absolute sense of, of that word so again we're not we're not uh, trapped by evil men we're not trapped in the grip of blind forces of chance because there's no such thing as chance or bad luck 
God is in control of absolutely every molecule of life in the universe, every event, every aspect of our lives. And because that's true, you know what you can do at night? Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. That's why Paul tells us, Philippians 4, 6, we are to be anxious for nothing. You know what that means in the Greek? We're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we're anxious, when we're fretting, when we're troubled in spirit, it really indicates a lack of trust in God's wisdom, God's sovereignty, God's power, God's care for us. It's really an emotion that says we lack trust in God's goodness. I think I told you this before, but the Puritans used to say that providence is the soft pillow for anxious heads. Providence is the soft pillow for anxious heads. So again, what happens is when we worry or become fearful, we lose confidence in God because of our situation, because of our circumstances. And when we do that, we lose confidence in the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of God's providence. We, we lose confidence in trusting him. We're not trusting him. We're not trusting his nature. We've somehow forgotten the fact that, he, again, he has loved us with an eternal love. And that eternal love he's carried over into time. And that eternal love that he's carried over into time, he's promised to carry into eternity future. Therefore, if that is true, will he not take care of the issues, problems, circumstances, troubles of a life in a fallen world that he has an absolute sovereign control over? So we have to choose to believe that, to believe truth, to believe God, to delight in the word of the Lord. To pray. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, right? The one who makes peace with sinners through Christ. The God of peace will, which surpasses uh, all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds. The God of peace gives his children peace to live in a fallen world because we walk by faith and not by sight because we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose we don't need to be fearful we know his love his kindness his mercy therefore we know that we can face all the uncertainties in life because we know he's in control he's given to us his word that we might know that. He's given to us his word that we might know that we're not alone. We need to trust him. Psalmist in Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And the Lord gives him a response in verse 14 of uh, Psalm 91. He says, Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known my name, I will call but he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. And again, isn't that what God has done for us? He's saved us. He's brought us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said again, I've taken care of your eternal destiny. Trust me in time. 
Christ himself says, don't worry what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. The Gentiles eagerly worry about these things, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. And don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has its own trouble. Just place your faith and your confidence on God, on the creator God, your creator God. Only two kinds of people in this world. Those who believe God and those who don't. That's it. And those who reject God and reject his word, they live in chaos, confusion. Those of us who believe God, we live in peace. We enjoy peace that surpasses understanding in the time of difficulties. No matter what happens, no matter the difficulty, no matter the issue, no matter the struggle, the righteous shall live by faith. You see that everywhere in the Bible. You see it in the, in the New Testament. You see it in the great hall of faith heroes in Hebrews 11. By faith. Or faith now is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, men of old gain approval. By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. That's hope. That's, again, that foundational principle. Go back to the beginning. How are you going to live your life? Abel, how do you live your life? By an understanding that God is sovereign. He's in control. He started the whole thing. He's the one who called me to himself. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. The writer says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For him who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned about, by God about the things not yet seen, and reference prepared, reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Hey, Noah, judgment's coming. It's going to rain. Noah goes, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Judgment's coming. That's all he had to hear. He builds an ark in the presence of everyone to see. All the neighbors, I'm sure, had great fun laughing at him. He actually believes there's a God who controls the events of time and eternity. He actually believes there's judgment coming. Can you believe that? And by faith, every day Noah went out there with a hammer and a saw and nails and whatever he used to put that boat together, he and his family, and he built that ark of salvation because he had trust in the word of God. Judgment came, and those who did not believe God were perished. They perished. Only two kinds of people in the world. People who believe God, people who don't. By faith, Abraham. Now, I mean, faith is just over and over. Abraham, again, when he was called as Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, he believed God, and God said, I'm going to reckon that to you as righteousness because you believe my word, and that's what faith is. Faith is a confident trust in the future that God has promised. Faith is a confident trust in the future that God has promised. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and it's built upon the fact that God is who he is, that he is the sovereign, that he is the Lord, he is the creator. You know, in the early New Testament church, the Christians were compelled to hold on to that foundational truth. They were commanded by the government to say Caesar is Lord, but they said, well, we we can't do that because Jesus is Lord. The authorities said, look, if you don't get in line, if you don't wear pinwheels on your head on Tuesday, if you don't get in line and follow us blindly, then if you don't say Caesar is Lord, then we're going to throw you to the lions. They still refused. Why? Because the word of God said that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. 
Again, Lloyd-Jones, he says, they believed a certain person had been born in the world in great poverty in Bethlehem and had worked as a carpenter and eventually died upon a cross, but they also believed that he was the Lord of glory, that he had risen from the dead. On the strength of that, they declared that they would never say Caesar's Lord. They risked all, and they died by faith in faith. He goes on and said, this is our position as Christians today. The choice is being forced upon us more and more. Is there anyone still foolish enough to bank on this world and what it has to offer? What is the controlling principle in our life? Is it calculation? Is it worldly wisdom? Is it shrewd, balanced, uh, uh, shrewd and a balanced view of history and of human knowledge? Or is it the word of God warning us that this life and the world are only transient? Both are merely a preparation for the world to come. It doesn't tell us to turn our back entirely on the world, but it does insist that we have a right view of the world. And emphatically states what really matters is the coming of God's kingdom, we must ask ourselves as in the presence of God the simple question, is my life based upon the faith principle? Am I submitting myself to the fact that what I read in the Bible is the word of God and is true? Am I willing to stake everything, my life included, upon that fact? For the just shall live by faith. But you know what? We live in difficult times. Fallen world full of fallen people, evil people, John... First John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we as God's people can't live by fear. We have to live by faith. Faith in the one who loved us. Faith in the one who gave himself for us. And therefore we've got to think biblically, act biblically, believe biblically, trust biblically, obey biblically. And what persecution does and what troubles do is they force us even closer to that one who has loved us. And again, in the midst of difficult time, as we walk by faith, we need to turn closer to him, not away from him. Believe everything that he says to be true. Be obedient to the word of God, no matter what's happening in life. Colossians 3.1, If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ who as our life is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That's truth. The righteous living by their faith really is the key to life. It's the key to living in a troubled world. It's a key to live in a world of hopeless people who are guided by fear. And again, none of us knows the future. None of us knows what's going to happen, but we can place our confidence in the faith of the one who does, right? The just shall live by faith because God is in control of all events the faithful God the loving God the one who has loved us therefore we can trust him as we walk by faith and not by sight I'm going to close with just a couple of things here John chapter 12 verse 41 says these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him I referenced Isaiah 6 earlier and it's interesting John 12, 6, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Speaking about Jesus Christ. What things did Isaiah see? Well, he definitely saw Christ in Isaiah 53, the glory of the suffering servant. And I think most certainly he saw Christ in Isaiah 6, the exalted one, high and lifted up. John is identifying out of John chapter 12, Jesus Christ with God sitting on the throne there in Isaiah 6. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, again back to creation, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we believe, when we believe, when we understand who Jesus Christ is, when God in his kindness opens our mind to receive that truth, that's the beginning of faith. That's the beginning of faith. When God opens your eyes to see something of the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, glory of the one who is sitting on his throne, the one who the last time the world saw him, they saw him as a a malefactor, a criminal. But that's not how they're going to see him the next time. Point number one, the creator God is in control. Point number two, the sovereign one is in control, seated upon his throne. His throne, point number three, that one who is seated is coming back. Revelation 19.11, that's why we read it. At the beginning, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits upon it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has the name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen.